Let's pray and get started. Father, we love you, and we thank you for um, pouring that love into us. We, we want to do more than just allow it to take up residence, even enjoy it. We want to give it away. And so that's what Grace Bomb is all about, just to help some folks who've been struggling right now financially. Businesses who were shut down for such a long period of time lost thousands upon thousands of dollars. Families who serve those businesses lost income as well. And so we want to help, um, in a very small way, replenish some of that. And we want to do it all for your glory and all for your grace. Father, we're not the only church in town who has an interest in pouring that love out to people in a tough place right now. First Baptist Church is doing what they can to bless our community. So are other churches like United Methodist. Uh, so is our CAM Center. So many places are trying to fill that gap where uh, times have gotten a little bit tough. Uh, please continue to shepherd us all through that. Help us as a body of Christ come out of this with a, a better reputation of being there when it counted. And we ask us in Jesus' name and everybody said. If you're visiting with us, you need to know that you are surrounded by a group of people who love children and who love students. Literally, every year we invest hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to teach and train them to know Jesus Christ because we want to prepare them to be young men and young women of character who influence this world for good. Literally, from entrance to our world to exit, this church believes people matter. Amen? That every single person on this planet is a work of art, and they need to be protected, and sometimes they need to be fought for. Now, if you'll follow me today, I want to focus our attention on why I believe that this world needs more children, not less. That we need more grace in this world and truth in this world, not less. This morning, I want to begin talking to you about a subject that has been on my heart for quite some time, and I, I don't know the best time to present it, so I'm going to present it this morning. You see, I don't think there's any time that's a good time because it's too politically charged a topic. Lines get drawn. Sides get taken when people hear about the subject of abortion. I almost always hear one of two things. One group says we're pro-life, and the other group says we're pro-choice. One says we protect and champion the rights of babies, and the other says we protect and champion the rights of women. But all too often, as citizens of this great country... I hate that we're forced to choose sides. I think that's unfortunate because as a teacher or a speaker like myself, I know we're capable of making this an either-or issue. It's just not when it comes to Jesus. See, Jesus was pro-baby, and Jesus is also pro-woman. Remember, friends, Jesus was conceived in a teenage woman's womb who became pregnant without a wedding ring. Now, I don't know when Jesus was made aware of it by his parents, but I'm, I'm convinced his mother at some point in his life had a conversation with him, letting him know about the humiliation and the fear and the anxiety that she experienced while carrying him. Jesus' ministry had to be shaped by that news because we see privately and publicly he was always loving women and children. And he purposefully elevated them in his first century world to a higher standard and a place than they ever were before. You know an example? There was a woman caught in the act of adultery. She's in bed with a married man when some religious leaders from the temple show up and they literally snatch her out of bed in that vulnerable moment. And they drag her into the street. Now women imagine this. They purposely create a mob scene because Jewish law said that they needed to stone a woman like this to death and the man, but it just so happened the woman is there today, and before they do, they drag her to Jesus, shove her in front of him, 
barely clothed if she has any on. Her hands are sweaty, her heart's pounding, the shame is so heavy she can't even look up. And one of the leaders shouts, the law says stone her, what do you say? When I don't know what to say about a subject, usually I try, at least, to find out what does Jesus say about this. And in this particular situation, the fascinating thing is, he doesn't say anything. You know the story. He bends down and he starts writing in the dirt. And you know what? It doesn't really matter what in the world he wrote in the dirt. And I say that because God decided we didn't need to know. Now, guys like me have made conjecture about that. Women like me have made conjecture about that. But you know what matters is what he did, not what he said in that moment. Because we can get a sense that for a moment at least, in that crazy, chaotic time, all of a sudden now, the attention's off of that woman, wherever she is, standing on the ground. Again, we don't know, but it's on him. Isn't that why we love him? Always concerned. Always wanting to do what he could to help someone who's in a tough place. Now, when he does speak, the next thing he says is important for us to note. If anybody is without sin, you be the first one to throw a stone at this woman. And then crickets, until we start hearing the dull thud of stones starting to drop and some sandals that are starting to slap as the oldest left first and the youngest followed. And then our loving leader had a very short conversation with this woman when he said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She says, no, Lord, then neither do I. But go and sin no more, okay? Two quick takeaways from that moment in my life is this. When Jesus said, neither do I condemn you, he's extending grace. And when he says the words, go and leave your life of sin, he's extending truth. Now, I didn't include it this morning, but to me, that adds up. Grace plus truth always equals love. Always. And that was Jesus in a nutshell. Full of grace and full of truth. Well, let me help us with this. Let me contextualize this to modern day times, okay? This is a picture of an abortion clinic. On the left is an entrance. On the right is an exit. So let me ask a question. Where do you think you'd find Jesus at an abortion clinic like this? I think that's a question that's worth asking. I think it's legit. And I think it depends upon the day, and I think it depends upon the woman. I think on, on Sundays, he would be right here up at the front. And he would say to the people coming into that abortion clinic, I love you very much. Please know you don't have to bear this burden alone. And then I think on, on other days, he would be at the exit over here with women who are coming out of the abortion clinic having had an abortion. And I think he would say to them, I love you. Please know you don't have to Bear this burden alone. I love you. The Jesus I know always offers both grace and truth because that's what love does. And that's the foundation I want to lay at the beginning of this series that we're going to build upon week after week for the next four weeks. And that is that my life matters. Because all lives matter. Every single one. From beginning to end. Now there's a lot of ways that I could launch this topic, but I want to do it this way. I believe that all lives matter from beginning to end because of my intellectual commitment to science first. That's why I'm pro-people. What science has learned in laboratories and what researchers have written in journals and every mother in this room instinctively knows in her heart is this, life begins at conception. Now over the years I've read and read and studied this particular subject and I've been surprised at 2.20 to actually come to this time in my life when the medical community is actually united around that truth. Listen to what the famous French geneticist Jerome Lejeune says, to accept the fact that after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being, is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. The human nature of the human being from conception to old age is not 
a metaphysical contention. It is plain experimental evidence. Now the challenge that comes from those who are abortion advocates, who refer to the baby in the womb with terms like this, next slide, and I think they have an agenda, terms like mass tissue, uh, uterine content, birth matter, product of conception, please hear me, those are slick marketing techniques. And they have to be. Because the evidence is too overwhelming that life begins at conception. <laughs> the, the owner of the largest abortion clinic in the state of Washington testified before Congress not long ago. Of course human life begins at conception. This isn't new news. It's just overlooked information. Really. Since 1973, 61 million lives have been put to an end because of overlooked information. Really? That deeply troubles me on several levels. 700,000 lives this year, even in the midst of COVID, will be put to an end because of overlooked information. Let me put this in a practical way. Let's say a young couple's at a New Year's Eve party and they dance and they drink a little bit and then they decide to, to sneak off and go hook up. And in that exchange, an egg is fertilized on December 31st. Next slide. Let's just go to the next day, January 1. Here's what's present scientifically. All 46 chromosomes are present giving the baby the unique genetic makeup that cannot be replaced or reproduced. Let's fast forward. Just three weeks later, the baby's heartbeat begins to beat. In three weeks, you have blood flow in the child. February the 7th, the baby's legs and eyes and hands begin to develop. That's just a few weeks later. Next. February 21st, the baby stays, starts kicking and swimming in the womb. Nora, my grandbaby, was doing backstrokes, I guarantee you. She is active. February 28th, just eight weeks later, every organ in the baby's body is in the proper place, bones are taking shape, and fingerprints are starting to form. From the moment of conception, eight weeks later, fingerprints are forming. The problem in America is most abortions happen after eight weeks. After eight weeks. Which is why ultrasounds, I believe, are so critical. Because I believe if every womb had a window, fewer women would have abortions because they'd see this. You don't have to be a medical researcher. You don't have to work in a laboratory. I think you just have to be a person with a heart that's not been calloused over with lies and deceit to see that that's a human being at eight weeks old. And to take that and put an end to it is to put an end to life, not to some pre-uterine mass. Not only that, those, those made-up marketing tools that enable us to put a life and keep businesses in, in going and making money on it. Rachel Compost Duffy, who was on The View, not the most conservative of shows, who was on The View and a wife of Senator Republican Sean Duffy, says this, 86.4% of, 86 of expecting moms decide not to have an abortion if they can just see the ultrasound. That's why our involvement with the Pregnancy Resource Center is so vital to this church. If we can just get someone who's thinking about an abortion in front of that picture and to see that baby, 86.4% of them will decide not to have an abortion. I think that's huge. Science has proven what's been written about in journals, and almost every mom-to-be, I think, instinctively, innately knows deep in her soul, abortion's wrong. Let me just say it that clearly, abortion's wrong. Now, what she doesn't know, often... It's how deeply devastating and sometimes catastrophically life-damaging it can be. I found a website this week called Abortion Testimonials. And they feature life stories for both women and men who have participated in an abortion on some level and suffered from that. 
Here's what one woman writes. Almost 50 years ago, I became pregnant. I did not want to hurt my mom as my dad had just died of cancer. And so a friend of mine assured me that we would be okay and gave me all the information about where to get the abortion. I flew flew to New York City from Illinois on a Friday, and I was back home on Saturday. After that, a despair and depression came over me deeper than anything I've experienced in my life. I have never felt so alone. Now, I turned to God in this time, and he helped me so much. But abortion's permanent. I would give anything, she writes, to undo it. Fifty years later, I regret that decision more than ever. I have to wait now till heaven to meet the first child in my life that I could have given birth to. And so please know, abortion may look like a fix, but it's actually just lies and deception. Here's a testimony from a man from his perspective. He said, as a teen, I was in a position where announcing my girlfriend's pregnancy would have been devastating to my mom, who was in a fragile state from divorce. Abortion had just been made legal that year. I knew it was wrong, but I lacked the courage to persevere through the shame and the hurt that it would cause, and I pressed on for an abortion with my girlfriend, since I knew it was legal now, after all. If I could only go back and change that forever life-altering decision, I would do it in a split second without hesitation, he writes. It has created an open wound in my heart and soul that has never been able to heal. I know the Lord died for our sins, and I pray every day to be forgiven. He's blessed me with other children for which I am grateful. But not a day goes by, not a day, that I do not think that I would have a grown adult in my life who was my child if I hadn't made that decision. Now, I share these testimonies as social, listen to me, science, as social reality as social evidence of the damage that happens when a life is put to an end on purpose, regardless of how brief that life has been. So let me say it again. I am pro-people. Number one, because of my intellectual commitment to science. Number two, because of my moral commitment to the concept of law. That's why I'm pro-people. And here's why I struggle with our country, the U.S. of A., because it has such flawed logic that exists right now in its system. If a young woman, and I understand it can be incredibly difficult for any young woman to be in this position, but if a young woman decides she's going to terminate a pregnancy in this country, it's considered under law a choice of convenience. But if somebody else outside of her body terminates that pregnancy, it's considered and ruled homicide at the worst, manslaughter. How can you even say this word at the best? If someone else terminates that life, it's murder or manslaughter. Those of you who work in the financial world, in the world of attorneys and banks, if you're helping someone write a will, you'll recognize that if they want to include, listen to this, you may not have known this, an unborn son or daughter in the will who will be birthed after you possibly die, they're property owners, legal property owners. You can include your grandson or granddaughter who may not have been born yet, And if they are born after you die, they are property owners in America. Technically, by law, they're a person. And so an unborn child has the right to own property in our country, but sometimes doesn't have the right to breathe or to live in this country. That's just wrong. Now listen to me. You can go to jail for two years in this country because you destroy an eagle's egg. And you can find an exorbitant amount of money, but not if you destroy a human embryo. Where's the logic in that? Where's the heart in that? It's so inconsistent. It just makes my soul sick. And what we said to the next generation is this then. What's developing inside an eagle's egg is more valuable than what's developing inside a human being's body. 
Now, you know this. I'm a fan of history. I really am. Because I think by sometimes looking backwards, we can avoid some mistakes going forwards. This is a guy by the name of Dred Scott. He was a slave in the state of Missouri. His owner took him to the state of Illinois. Well, in Illinois, it's illegal to sell a slave. And the owner tried to. That opened a door for Dred Scott. He sued his owner. And the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled that slaves were not people, but property. However, that ignited a nationwide debate, which eventually led to the Civil War, which triggered the Emancipation Proclamation later, which triggered the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution later, that indeed, slaves are people, not property. Sometimes you have to go to battle for life, and Jesus calls us to do that. In her book, Who Broke the Baby?, Jean Garten makes this comment, history has proven us wrong about the Native American. History has proven us wrong about African Americans. We cannot afford to wait for history to prove us wrong about the unborn. In other words, she's convinced, and I'm with her, that the greatest infringement on civil rights that we have seen historically is abortion. It's racism in a different form. At the heart of our country, who says it believes all lives matter, remains a law that says, but not the right of the unborn. And that troubles me, because if it's harmful at the beginning of life, I want you to understand, I believe it's also harmful at the end of life. And some of you are approaching that. How do you want us in this country to handle you? Because if we can get it wrong with how we fight for life or don't at the beginning, doesn't you think that opens the door for how we fight for your life at the end? I'm telling you, it's already here. It's called euthanasia. You used to always think that was youth in Asia. I didn't even want to put the word up on the screen. It's just euthanasia. And it's an awful word. It means to put someone to death purposely at the end of their life when they didn't ask to be. It's happening in Europe today. They embraced abortion longer, much longer before we did, and now they're embracing euthanasia. Here's an example. Vince Lambert's 42 years old. He was paralyzed in a motorcycle accident in 2008. Because of the way their healthcare system is structured, he became a burden to taxpayers because he was a cost, a seemingly perpetual cost, and he wasn't contributing. And so a judge recently ordered for doctors to quit giving him food and water. And when his parents delivered the news to him in person, he wept. He wept. And the reason is because he recognized what that would mean for him. And it was true because nine days later he died. Now, not long ago, France was on the right path. Here's Nicholas Winton. During World War II, the man recognized what Germany was doing even before others did. And he rescued 669 Jewish children from certain death. He'd get them on trains 10 at a time. He'd get them to England or France or Belgium or to the U.S. He forged documents. The man did whatever he could legally and illegally to protect those children. And he'd get them into living homes. Today, 15,000 people can trace their lives to the work of that one courageous man. Don't tell me your life doesn't matter. 15,000 people can trace their life to him helping to save those 669 babies. It's because all life matters, people. And I say all this because, number one, my intellectual commitment is to science, and I have a moral commitment to law, and I'm telling you all this about Frank Vincent Lambert because I believe that man had every right to live. And I'm also telling you that because I don't believe Hitler or any judge in France could tell somebody they don't have it. They don't have the right. Now, lastly, I believe that people matter. I'm pro-people because my spiritual commitment to Scripture is strong. And I'm going to say this, it matters most to me. David said in Psalms 139, You made all the delicate inward parts of my body and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship's marvelous. How well I know it. 
He went on to sing this song. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in that dark womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. Jeremiah joined his song as God spoke through him in chapter 1 and verse 5. He said, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. God said, before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Paul would amen the same thing when he writes to the Galatian church. My life matters. Even before I was born, God chose me and he called me by his marvelous grace. God did that. Translation. Friend, God has known you longer than you've known you. And he's loved you before anyone on this earth loved you. And that'll never change. No matter what another human being tries to do to you. Never changes. There's this thread that runs through this book, literally, from cover to cover. It's a sexual ethic that God hopes every one of his kids at least get. And it's this. If we are responsible enough to have sex, then we need to be responsible enough to raise the children sex produces. I want everyone to hear that. Those of you who are young and who, who, who maybe never have participated in this before, and those of you who have grandchildren who will participate in this, I hope you help them understand from cover to cover, this book teaches one ethic about sex. If we're responsible enough to have sex, then we need to be responsible enough to raise the children sex produces. This is Maya Angelou. She's one of America's most loved poets. You may not have known that. She's a brilliant woman. She's a classy woman. Most of you don't know, if you do know her, that at 16 years of age, she became pregnant after having sex one time. Just one encounter. She said, I was so scared. Scared to pieces. See, back then, if you had money, there were some girls who could have abortions, but I couldn't deal with that idea at all. Oh, no, I knew there was somebody inside of me alive. And so I decided to keep that baby, and it was the best decision I ever made. Absolutely, Guy has been the delight of my life from the start. So good. He's so bright. I cannot imagine my life without him. At 17, I got a job as a cook and as a late-night club waitress. My mother told me early on, Maya, you can always come home if you need to. And she kept her door open, and I, I tried out that. Every time life would kick me in the stomach, I would go home for a few weeks. Struggle? <laughs> yes, I struggled. We lived hand to mouth, but really it was heart to hand. Guy had love, and he had laughter, and he had a lot of good reading of poetry. Having my son brought out the best of me, and it enlarged my life. Whatever he missed, he himself is a great father today. And years later when I married, I wanted to have more children, but I couldn't conceive. Isn't it wonderful that I had a child when I was 16? Now, that's the right perspective, even maybe of a wrong decision with someone else. That's the right life perspective. So let me close with this. Whenever I counsel a woman of any age who's been through an abortion, I say this. Whenever I counsel any young man who's helped to fund an abortion, I say this. Whenever I've had to counsel with a doctor who's been a part of performing an abortion, I share this. Friend, you are either forgiven or you are forgivable. End of story. With our God, you are either forgiven or you are forgivable. If you're a Christian, if you've given your life to Christ and you've buried that life in Christ, oh, the blood of the cross has covered every sin in your life, past, present, and future. He died before you ever were even born, before you ever committed your first sin. When you say yes and put your trust in what he did for you at the cross, not what you do, what he did. He forgives that sin. And then when he raises you out of that water and fills you with his spirit, he sets you on a path that he hopes that you will choose and he will help you choose what God would have you do with your life. But when you make mistakes with it, 
Here's what Romans 5 and verse 10 says, 20. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. I didn't have to make that up. It's right there in his book. He writes it to the Roman church, and I'm saying it to the Kerrville church. Wherever your sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. But that's if you have a relationship with him. If you don't, get one. Get one. Because that's what's available to you when you do. I was talking to a woman 20 years ago, and what she told me I had to write down. She said, I had an abortion. In that moment, I had put my heart in a freezer in order not to be bothered by the act. But my heart's been thawing out for the last few years. And as it gets warmer, it gets more tender. And I think I'm starting to live again. If you're listening to this message in this room or if you're listening to us online, I want to say this as lovingly as I possibly can and with as much heart as I possibly can. You may have an unwanted pregnancy, but you do not have an unwanted baby. You may have an unwanted pregnancy, but you will never have an unwanted baby. I promise you, we can connect you with people who can have children, who literally would die to have a child if they could. And we will place you with them. Adoption is always the best option over abortion. Always. And if you're hearing this message and you're scared, you don't know where to turn, you don't have a, a network of people, then I want to say this to you. We want to be that network of people. And here's a number. Next slide. If you find yourself in a place ever where you don't know where to turn and there's a life inside you and you don't know whether to get rid of it or not, before, I don't care, you call this number because we have people here at this church, we exist for this, for people to live. <laughs> the one that we follow is the way, the truth, and the... So we protect it. And we nourish it, and we, we grow it, and we mature it as best as we can for His glory and for our sake. So you call that number if you ever get to a place where you don't know where to turn. We'll do our best to help you. We have some great ministries that we partner with, Pregnancy Resource Center, Divinity Family Ministries. We will get you connected with some help. That's our commitment to you. That's who we are as a church, because you matter, and that life inside you matters. Or that life, if you're a male that you're helping to fund to put an end to, that life matters. And your life on the other side of it will not be, it will not be hearing me without consequence for that decision. I'm going to close. That's been, this has been heavy, I understand this, with the Schwant family in Michigan. They had 14 sons. Now just take that in for a moment. 14 sons. They appeared on Good Morning America. There's the youngest one there in the little carrier. <laughs> and the woman asked her, asked the mom, why did you have 14 sons? And here's what she said. I really wanted to have a daughter. <laughs> well, you'd have thought after 10, maybe 11, there was a pattern or something, right? Well, they finally had the 14th, and Mom decided this is it. And so they named the child Finley Sheboygan. But that's really cold for this. Finally, she's a boy again. True story. Now, I don't know what Finley's going to think when he grows up with that name, but I love the Schwans for that. Because I really believe that we need more children in our world, not less. And I'm afraid that won't happen without a fight. Without a peaceful, graceful fight. In Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 8, the wise man says, Please open your mouth for the speechless. So I'm trying. Trying. Because my intellectual commitment to science says I need to. Because of my moral commitment to law says I need to. Because of my spiritual commitment to scripture says I need to. I'm pro-people for those reasons. But for one more because of my personal experience. It's not the first time I've shared this, probably the second, maybe the third at the most, but I was a had-to-get-married baby. When my mother conceived me, 
It wasn't just absent outside of a marriage. It was absent outside of a relationship. She wasn't even seeing my dad anymore. They had a huge fight a couple of weeks earlier when she found out she was pregnant with me. They did get married. And she birthed a sister and a brother to me. And so we were welcome to have life. But that was 1961, before Roe versus Wade in 1973. If I had been conceived in 2020, under those circumstances, not even a wedding ring, but not even a relationship, there's a really good chance I wouldn't be here. So this is personal for me. It's personal. But I hope it's personal for you because Jesus made it personal. He came and gave his life to give us life. And I know that we've been saying in the last couple of weeks, all lives matter. And they do. But will you do something about that? Will you start with prayer? We talked about this last week, remember? It's not the last resort. It's our first response. 700,000 lives we may lose 200, 300,000 max with COVID. 700,000 lives will be purposefully put to death this year. Will you do something? Will you start with prayer? Will you, will you help in our pregnancy resource centers here? Will you help Divinity Family? If that means some, fun, some funding that you give them, great. If it's some time, great. Will you vote for champions of the unborn? You can do that. But do something. Because love does something. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning giving you thanks and glory and praise for what you did. You said some great things, but what you did is what draws us here today. That act of sacrifice, that act of it's not about me is what draws us here today. So will you help us when we come to the hard decisions of life to remember it's not about me? Yes, my life matters. Yes, my life matters because you told us that it does and because you died for us to prove that it does. But when it becomes inconvenient and we want to take a life for any reason, whether young or old, would you please help us think twice? Would you, think us, would you help us think about what your son has taught us? Will you fill us with your grace? Will you fill us with your truth? Will you help us be love, enfleshed? We ask this in Jesus' name. Before we get up and sing this morning, I want to pray one more prayer specifically for those in this room. And I want the others of you who've never experienced something that's connected to abortion, either funding one, either experiencing one, or even having someone in your... If, if that's not happened to you, we want to pray over those who have, okay? For just a second, specifically. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, and I don't know if someone's watching us online. I don't know if they're even here at present this morning. You're a God who sets us up. If there's someone that's about to face something like this in the near future, please, God, will you help them know that they have a number they can call that they have people they can turn to will help them navigate these shadowy, dark places sometimes we find ourselves in. And Father, where there is grace and mercy needed, we want to be a resource of that. Help us be able to speak grace. And maybe they're here this morning. Help them find me or one of our elders or one of the women that they trust here, but someone who can speak grace into their life and help them begin the process of healing. You are a great and mighty God. And lastly, I just want to pray one more time for my sister Donna. Father, as she's in the last couple of hours, maybe literally on the face of this planet, we pray that your angels in their mercy and their, their loving care will come take her home and that you'll be with our precious brother Art as he has to say goodbye. And you'll be with those boys and those daughter-in-laws who have to say goodbye. Help them do it with joy in their heart knowing that she leaves this body here to step into life like we can't imagine. So we cover these members of our families with your word and with the promise that you are good. And you will see us to the end because of your presence in this world. In Christ's name we praise you and everyone's saved.